And Jim and I started a new series of studies last Sunday titled, Why Do We Believe That? And last week was a discussion of God is good. It's kind of a running joke around Wilshire that anytime Jim starts a series like this, he leaves town and dumps the hard questions in my lap. You guys have heard me complain about that before. I'll continue to complain about that. The, the most infamous one was when he left town and asked me to preach on the Trinity on a Sunday night. I, so uh, I was braced for bear. I was ready for something hard today. And, and he really kind of floated one across the plate for me. So I want to express my appreciation to Jim for doing that today. There's something about this series though, that we, we need to make clear. Jim talked about this a little bit last Sunday, but it needs to be made clear so there's no confusion. Anytime we have a conversation, an, a discussion, or we address some critical issues, there are two ways that we address these. This is every part of life. We either address them to people who who share our basic assumptions of life, or we address them with people who don't share those basic assumptions in life. For instance, if you're having a discussion with someone at work about spiritual issues, and you appeal to Scripture to make your case, yet they don't believe in the validity of Scripture, you're not going to go anywhere. It's going to be a long, hard conversation. If you're having a discussion with your wife and you believe that you're always right and she believes you're always wrong, you're not going to get very far. We always we always have these conversations between those two groups, people who share our basic assumptions and people who don't share our basic assumptions. And so it's important that we let you know that this series of sermons is not geared to people outside. It's not geared to address the harsh critics of Christian faith. It's geared towards you and me. Those of us who who operate and who live in this world that we believe there is a God, but, but there are questions about that, that there are challenges within that. And it's important for you to know that because as we talk about these issues, we know and we understand that the things we say about some of these issues aren't necessarily convincing proofs to people out there. But to those of us within the Lord's church and those of us who who believe in the Christian faith, if we operate from the same set of assumptions, then we can answer certain questions beginning. Does that make sense at all? So So that some of these questions are things that we may question and wonder and sometimes debate, but we operate from this fundamental set of beliefs. So that brings me to our topic this morning. How many of you have in your hand a Bible? Hold it up. How many brought a Bible today? People frantically reaching for the pew. They don't want to be outed. Some of you holding your cell phones up. That's okay. You get partial credit for that. (laughs) What's interesting is that you're carrying around a book that has been written over the course of about 1,500 years, that in its final form was completed probably around the end of the first century world. 
nearly 2,000 years ago. Yet you, when you walked out of your house, you probably stopped at that special place by the door where you keep your Bible so you know it's always there. You, you, you have it bound in nice leather. And, and you treat this book as if it's something unique, something different, something different than classical works of the old, uh, of the old world. That there's, there's something unique about this book. That's why you're carrying it this morning. And in an act of irony, we take an old text and we put it on new modern devices. So as culture advances and we can now check our email and, and surf the Internet and update our calendar in the palm of our hand, we, we say this piece of technology needs to have access to Scripture. Something modern that gives us access to something of the past. Why do you carry a Bible around? What is it about Scripture that makes you think that this is God's Word? Now, when you read through Scripture, you'll find some fascinating claims that it makes of itself. Psalm 19, Doug read for us earlier today. If you glance through that text, it's really divided into two parts. And in the Jewish mind, there were two things that revealed God to us. You could find God through looking at the heavens. The heavens declare the glory of God, the firmament shows His handiwork. And if you looked at creation and you looked at the structure of the world, you stood back in awe and you said, there is a God who is a beauty-defined God. That He made this world in all its order and its, its consistency. There's something about God that's displayed in that. And then the book of Psalms divides and it begins moving away from that revelation of God to the second part, which is the law of the Lord. So Psalm 19, the law is perfect. His statutes are trustworthy. Commands are radiant. The fear of the Lord is pure, more precious than gold, sweeter than honey. Well, that's quite a claim. Or there's Psalm 119. Flip over a hundred chapters and you land in your Old Testament to the longest, most extensive chapter of all Scripture. And you know what that chapter, the entirety of that chapter is about? The law, the commandment, the word, the decrees, the ordinances. It's so complete, it's so, it's so important to who we are as God's people that we, we have an entire chapter, the longest one in all of Scripture, devoted to a praise of God's word. A light into my feet and a lamp into my path. It, it directs the ways. Why do you believe that? And it's not just the Old Testament law or the Old Testament writings. The prophets, you, you read the prophets and the prophets show up and they announce, I've got a word from the Lord. Well, who doesn't make that claim? What's unique about them? And the New Testament. The New Testament continues the thought. Paul writes to Timothy and says, look, you need to recall the scriptures that Lois and Eunice, your grandmother and mother, put into you because they make you wise to salvation. And then this text that you all probably know, if you've been around the church for very long, all Scripture is God-breathed. It's given by the inspiration of God. And, and that Scripture, it's not just any book, that Scripture, Paul says, is perfect in 
revealing for reproving, rebuking, exhorting. It thoroughly equips the person of God. That book, that 2,000-year-old book you grabbed on your way out today. So why is it that we believe that? What is it about Scripture that makes us believe that it's from God? Well, I will give you just a few reasons today. And, and let me remind you, these reasons won't be convincing to someone who doesn't already have an understanding or a belief in God, a belief in Jesus. This is geared towards us. One reason we believe that the Bible is the Word of God is because Jesus and the early church believed the Bible was the Word of God. Now, I realize that that may sound a bit circular in reasoning. You know, it's like when your wife, when you say to someone, my wife is beautiful, how do you know that? Because she told me she's beautiful. How do you know she's right about that? Because my wife told me she's right about that. Circular reasoning. And for some people to say, well, we believe the Bible is the Word of God because Jesus believed the Word of God, seems circular because, after all, don't you believe Jesus because the Bible tells you to believe Jesus? So to say that Jesus believes the Bible because the Bible tells us Jesus believes the Bible is circular reasoning. But but push pause and think about this for a moment. Jesus existed before the New Testament told us about him. You realize that the New Testament authors wrote about Jesus because they had seen and encountered and witnessed someone that they had to write about. And so the New Testament is completed, I believe, by the end of the first century, within a hundred years of the life of Jesus. But the reason they're writing about Jesus is because Jesus believed that Scripture was true. And the Old Testament, Jesus believed the Old Testament was true, but here again, not circular reasoning. It seems odd. Well, of course the Bible's true that Jesus says it's true. Jesus pushed people back to re-envision, to reinterpret, to re-understand what the Bible said and meant. And so to say that we believe it as God's people because Jesus believed it, is to put Jesus before Scripture. I don't mean in contradiction. I just mean we as God's people believe in Scripture because Jesus calls us to believe in Scripture. You can believe in Jesus. You can understand the existence of Jesus and the story of Jesus because there is a church, because there is a history outside of the New Testament that calls for belief in Jesus Christ. And one of the things you find in history is that Jesus and the early church believed Scripture. They believed it to be the Word of God. And so it makes all the sense in the world that Jesus, in Matthew chapter 22, when confronted by the Pharisees, Sadducees, and teachers of the law, Jesus tells them in 22 verse 39, You err not knowing God, the power of God. You don't know Scripture. And Jesus, when he's walking on the road to Emmaus and he's, he's talking to these disciples who didn't know who he was in Luke chapter 24, he gets to this section and, and Luke tells you that he opened their eyes and he explained that he was the fulfillment of everything contained in the law and the prophets. It all pointed to him. 
And if we are Christians, we are people who believe what Jesus Christ calls us to believe. We believe Scripture. And the early church wrestles with and it and it tries to it tries to bring into easy access the story of Scripture, the story of Jesus contained in Scripture. So I realize this is not an argument necessarily that's convincing to non believers, but if you believe in Jesus, Jesus believed the Bible was God's word. He embodied that. Well, the second reason I think we should consider is because the Bible confronts the reality of life. That's a fascinating thing to think about. I mean, Scripture is filled with the good, the bad, and the ugly. I mean, there are things in Scripture that if I were writing a book and I was trying to make an argument, there are things in Scripture I probably would hide. I wouldn't put in my book. I mean, think about this. Genesis chapter 12, Abraham, the father of Jewish faith, the the man through whom the promise of God is going to come. We want a good hero. We want a good story. Abraham's got doubts. God says, I'm going I'm to raise up a child through you that's going to raise up a nation. Through you, I'm going to bless all nations of the earth. He's the father of Jewish faith, and he has doubts. That's not a pretty story. He, he goes all these years, 25 years without seeing the promise of God, and he, he and his wife Sarah decide maybe we should take matters in our own hands and go a different route with this. Yeah, I'd take your servant here. Father of Jewish faith. Or how about, how about the story of David? So much of Scripture talks about David as being a great king and, and Jesus coming as being uh, the son of David, which means he's after the order of David. David was the one in the Old Testament, First Samuel, that he's the one that is the king we've been waiting for. Have you read the story of David? One night David is supposed to be out with other kings or out with his army at war. Decides to go for a walk on the roof. And he looks over at his neighbor's house and he sees a beautiful woman. And in a fierce abuse of power, he says, I want her. And then the guilt of adultery leads to the shame of murder. And a year of lying. And a broken man. That's your king? The Bible confronts the reality of life. It doesn't, it doesn't hide those things. Job, have you read the book of Job? Most people claim to, but you listen to them talk about it and you're not sure they have. The patience of Job. Yeah, Job threatens to sue God. If I could find a lawyer and a judge who would take the case, I'd drag you into court. I'd testify that my, that my life is true and what you're doing is unjust. He questions God, whether or not God's resume, God's history is up to being God. I question your qualifications for ruling the universe. Now, granted, at the end of the book of Job, Job shuts his mouth. But if you were writing a book and you wanted it to be this flawless, perfect, kind of floating above all norms, that people read it and say, that is obviously the word of God, would you put something in like that? The Bible confronts. The reality of life. It's fascinating how it does that. 
It asks honest questions of the God it proclaims to be speaking for. You realize the Psalms are filled with different types of Psalms. We've got Psalms to celebrate and Psalms uh, to praise and Psalms for special occasions. But you know what kind of Psalm is most prevalent in the book of Psalm? Psalms of lament. Psalms like Psalm 88, Psalm 84. One scholar says it's an embarrassment to conventional faith. Because it questions God. And one of the reasons we believe that the Bible is the Word of God is because it is honest about life. It is honest about our own questions. It doesn't run from them. It doesn't hide from them. It doesn't pretend they're not there. It doesn't try to protect God as if God can't handle the questions. It takes those questions and it takes the reality of life and it says here, Others have voiced these concerns, and God can take your questions. And we're going to write these in a book, and we're going to canonize these, so that people for centuries can read this. And we believe that it's the Word of God because it confronts the reality of the world in which we live. You ever ever bought some product at the store that needs to be put together? And have you ever wondered, how do they find people to do such a horrible job of writing instructions? Have you been there? It's very obvious, and people have often, it's obvious that English was not their first, second, or third language. I mean, we've got life, and we need a book to guide us through life. We need a voice from God to show us. What if the Bible ignored your concerns? What if the Bible ignored your issues and ignored your pain? And if we were trying to compose a book that we could pass off as inspired or or pretend it's inspired, the last thing we would put in it are stories like David. Questions like the Psalms. But it's there. And even in the life of Jesus, people often point out there are things in the story of Jesus that are so honest. And if looked at by critics, you would take it out. Jesus, who is God in the flesh, gets hungry. Jesus, who is the God in flesh, comes to the tomb of Lazarus and he weeps? Jesus, God in the flesh, is found in the garden praying so desperately and weeping tears. That's the sign of weakness. Scripture does not hide those images of Jesus. Because they're true. Because this is the Word of God and the reality of life. If you want to sound smart tomorrow, We call this evidence of incongruity. When what we believe and what we say seem to be in conflict, but we're not going to hide it. You realize when Jesus was raised from the grave, no one to our knowledge in Jewish history believed that was going to happen. No one. It was such a shocking event 
that the Jewish people and the disciples of Jesus had to go back and say, we know this has happened, we've seen this has happened, but how do you explain it? We've got to go back and, and reread our Old Testament and reread our Bible because we believe that's true, but no one saw this coming, so how do they work together? But if you were just writing something, trying to pass it off, you would gloss over those incongruities. Not the Bible. It confronts it head on. There's one more reason I want to offer this morning. And, and again, I realize that if you're listening online or if you're listening out here and, and you're a critic of faith, this may not be convincing. That's another set of evidence, another line of questioning. But for those of us of faith, do you realize that the Bible has withstood endless critics in every attempt to disprove it? Now, granted, Islam makes the same claim of the Quran. Mormons make the same claim in the Book of Mormon. But there's something distinctive about Scripture. You see, Islam believes that the Quran was written over approximately 23 years, revealed to Muhammad who then in turn gave it to other people. But that the only way that you can truly trust the Quran is if it's in its original language. The Mormons believe that the Book of Mormon was revealed to Joseph Smith. The angel placed the the plates in this special place that Joseph Smith came and he interpreted and he brought up. And that the word of these truths go back to one man. Scripture was written over the course of 1,500 years. Over 40 authors compiling 66 books. All with the same idea in mind. That there is a God who speaks and he has chosen to speak through his people. You see, the unique thing about Scripture is that it places itself out there for the critics to poke and prod. You listen, you listen to people who often talk about textual criticism. If, if you want your eyes to roll into the back of your head and your head to nod off, just think about textual criticism. People who stare at minute manuscripts and they try to figure out why this one reads differently than this one and, and how they, how they contradict or how they support and how we get all this stuff. Do you realize the Bible is the only religious document that is subjected to that level of scrutiny? And do you know why it's subjected to that? Because there are so many pieces of manuscripts out there that it can be done. No other document, no other religious writing, no other secular writing has that broad a spectrum to poke and to prod it. Do you realize the Bible that the story of Scripture was written down and penned not years later in far off places that it started out in the same place that the story it tells you happened. Jesus Christ was crucified in Jerusalem. The New Testament authors begin writing by the end of the 50s. 
And, and the things in the Bible that it talks about are things that people in that day knew and they could find out. Matthew and John tell you Jesus is buried in the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea. A prominent official. Member of the Sanhedrin. You realize that when that story and that claim was made, it was made to people who knew Joseph of Arimathea? A certain man, Nicodemus, came to Jesus by night. Nicodemus. Not a certain man, unknown by name. Luke says, John says, here's his name. Go check for yourself. But the story of the resurrection of Jesus recorded in Scripture and and reflected on by Paul later in the New Testament is a story that grew in and among Jerusalem. So that when the apostles stood up and preached in Acts 2, go to the tomb, it's empty. Everyone in Jerusalem could go to the tomb. And they knew it was empty. Why do we believe this is God's word? Because it puts itself out there. And it accepts the criticism. And it interacts with the evidence of people. Peter said, no prophecy of Scripture is of private interpretation. This didn't happen in a back room, in a far off place. Only under the credibility of one person. This is the work of 1,500 years. Various places. Various authors and a single point of reference. It's God. We believe this is the Word of God. Not out of a blind faith and not out of some reluctant acceptance. We believe it. And do you realize that Scripture, more than any other book, has changed the course of history? When Martin Luther stood in front of the Diet of Worms, defending his writings, they asked him, do you recant what you've written? Do you reject what you've written? And Martin Luther, in a famous speech, says, if I am not convinced by proof from Holy Scripture, by cogent reasons, if I'm not satisfied by the very text I have cited, and if my judgment is not in this way brought into subjection to God's word, I neither can nor will retract anything. And that helped spark a reformation that has changed the face of the world. Gutenberg's Bible. If you're to travel to Washington, D.C. and you go to the Library of Congress, the Library of Congress, right there next to the Supreme Court, right in the back door of the Capital, United States, is the Library of Congress that demonstrated prominently is a Gutenberg Bible. Gutenberg, you may recall from seventh grade history, was the guy who developed movable type, who could mass produce books, and one of the earliest, greatest works he produced and reproduced was Scripture. And there in our nation's capital is this influential book. Why? Because it has changed the course of history. Now I realize that if you're a critic of Scripture, 
or a disbeliever in God, that you're not somehow suddenly convinced, ready to walk the aisle and accept Jesus Christ. But to those of us who believe there is a God, that's powerful reasons to believe this is the Word of God. Because if God has it in Him to create the world out of nothing, to speak and to bring it about, to speak and raise a dead man from the grave, doesn't it seem reasonable that a God of that ability is capable of moving men to record and tell His story and to reveal to His people And the central claim of what it means to be people of God is that we listen to the voice of God. So why are you carrying that old book around? It is filled with fascinating stories and interesting poetry. Great proverbial wisdom. But there are other books you could pick for that. So why did you choose that one? Why do you put that one in the special place of your house and download it onto your cell phone? Why do you come to a place like this where we read it, study it, and try to conform our lives to the message contained in it? I like the way one writer said it. Picking it up, you need to remind yourself that you hold in your hands not only the most famous book in the world, but one which is extraordinary in its power to change lives, to change communities, to change the world. It's done it before, and it can do it again. All Scripture is given by the inspiration of God, and it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. So that the man and woman of a God may be perfect, completely furnished to every good work. God didn't just inspire it to sit on a shelf. He inspired it for a purpose. And when scripture says it's inspired, it is God breathed that the the same voice of God that moved earth into creation moves in that book you brought with you this morning. We offer this invitation in the name of Jesus Christ to those who have accepted the message that Jesus Christ is the Son of God, the very embodiment of Scripture, the very truth from God's own heart. If you need to accept that message today through faith, repentance, and baptism, that's why we offer this invitation. And if we can help you in any way, we invite you to come while we stand and sing.